Good afternoon and welcome to today's activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for the presenter today, please enter it in the Q&A bubble and we will ask at the end of the presentation. If you are in person today, you will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And for those viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Tobias Wasser. Dr. Wasser received his medical degree from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and completed all his psychiatry training at Yale, including the residency program and fellowships in both forensic and public psychiatry. He is currently an associate professor of psychiatry at Yale with active involvement in both the public psychiatry and law and psychiatry divisions. He is a clinical educator whose scholarly work focuses on research, education, and leadership at the intersections of forensic and public sector mental health systems. For the past five years, he has served as the chief medical officer of Whiting Forensic Hospital, Connecticut's only state-operated forensic hospital. Beginning in 2022, he was appointed to serve as the residency program director and deputy chair of education for Yale Psychiatry Department. Join me in welcoming Dr. Wasser. <clears throat> Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak with you all. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure through this format, it's different in every Zoom that we do, whether there be opportunity for the audience to participate in different ways. I'll certainly try to, and if we can, um, I hope you'll be able to, to participate at different intervals. Um, so uh, I'm here today to talk about the issues of confidentiality and duties to third parties. So the title of the presentation is Understanding the Duty to Protect Third Parties, Your Patient, and Yourself. So I, um, I don't have any particular conflicts of interest to disclose. I am the editor of a textbook for students, residents, and early career folks entitled Law and Psychiatry Basic Principles. Much of the teaching that I'm going to be doing comes from that today. Um, uh, otherwise, I have no other conflicts to disclose. So in today's session, my hope is that as a, um, by virtue of participating, that all of you participants will be able to, one, demonstrate an understanding of the concepts of confidentiality, privilege, privacy, and duty to third parties that you'll hopefully be able to identify some common exceptions to confidentiality, and that you may be able to appreciate the options that are available to you in a clinical setting when a patient verbalizes a threat to an identifiable victim and how to conduct a basic risk assessment to appropriately respond to that situation. So uh, in the presentation, it's gonna be broken down essentially into two parts. The first is gonna focus primarily on confidentiality, Going to talk about different legal terms, common exceptions to confidentiality laws under both federal and state laws, and then we'll talk a bit about HIPAA. I'll then move to focusing on duty to third parties, which is also known as Tarasoft. We'll talk a little bit about the history of the Tarasoft case, the concept of duty to third parties and different types of Tarasoft laws, and then management strategies when you're encountering a patient who is verbalizing a threat to a third party, and then hopefully there will be some time for questions. But first, I want to begin with a brief video clip that highlights how important confidentiality is in the clinical encounter with patients. Everything you write down is confidential. We need you to give real answers. Fine. How many drinks of alcohol do you consume a week? One. That's it? One drink? One shelf. Do you exercise? Yes. Love making and woodworking. Do you have any history of mental illness in your family? I have an uncle who does yoga. Allergies? Cowardice and weak-willed men. And hazelnuts. Sexual history. Epic and private. Okay. Um, so I, I, I hope that people found that to be a, a humorous example of why confidentiality is so important in a clinical encounter. Um, so we'll start just by doing some basic definitions. This may be very well understood for some and less well understood for others, but it's important that we start with some level setting. 
So confidentiality is a physician or a clinician's obligation to protect a patient's personal or health information unless you're given explicit informed permission to disclose that information. Confidentiality is both an ethical and a legal duty to protect patient privacy. The legal duty to protect their privacy has very specific definitions and expectations, and these arise both from federal and state law. So one brief case example here. So imagine you're working in an outpatient clinic when a court martial arrives at the front desk asking for you. You're told that one of your patients is the subject of a lawsuit, and there's a subpoena requesting that the patient's records and that you individually present to court tomorrow to testify about your patient's treatment. So what would you do? What would you think about in this scenario? I'm going to look to my technical assistance here. Is there the opportunity for audience participation or not through this format? Answer the question. Oh, here we go. Hold on. Hey, good morning or good afternoon, Dr. Weiser. Uh, this is Dr. Fowler, one of the psych interns here at uh, NGHS. I would actually contact Dr. Glass, our uh, attending. He has a fellowship in forensic psychiatry uh, and see what his suggestions would be. So I don't see him. Okay. So first of all, thank you for being brave enough to come up and answer the question. I really, I applaud your effort. And I think as a, as a trainee, particularly as a PGY1, that's exactly the right answer uh, is to get consultation from a supervisor and get some guidance. Um, so that's a perfectly appropriate. And you mentioned Dr. Glass, is that Dr. Oliver Glass? Yes. Wonderful, that's great. Um, so yeah, so that's correct. So, and my hope is that what Dr. Glass would advise you is that it depends on the type of subpoena that you're receiving. And so it's important to understand if the subpoena is really what's called a, essentially a court order, it's an order from a judge, then you would be required to bring the records and to, for yourself to present to court. The other thing you probably wanna think about doing is contacting the patient to make sure the patient's aware of the lawsuit and see if you can get a release of information from the patient. Uh, in order for you to speak about their treatment and to share their records. Without that release of information, the only way in which you should present to court and share any records is with a court order. Uh, there are other forms of subpoenas you may receive that are from an attorney. That would not be sufficient in this case. It has to be a judicial order for you to breach confidentiality. So next up is the concept of privilege. So Confidentiality and privilege are related, but somewhat different concepts. Privilege is actually a, a legal concept. So it's not an ethical, it's not clinical, it's solely a legal concept. And it protects certain types of communications from having to be revealed in court. So typically in a legal proceeding, there are two sides. So there's the defense and the prosecution, the plaintiff and the defendant, depending on whether it's criminal or civil. Part of the fact finder's job, so a fact finder is either a judge or a jury, is to try to figure out what happened as best they're able to in whatever the legal predicament is, and it's rarely an easy task. So the way the legal system is set up to try to help accomplish this is that they want to ensure that the fact finder has access to as much information or evidence and testimony as possible because they're striving for truth and justice. However, the legal system does recognize that there is a particular social and societal value of privacy in particular special relationships, and that in the context of those relationships, if either party was forced to disclose these confidential communications, it might create greater societal problems. So in those specific situations, the court or the laws can grant a privilege so that one of the parties cannot be compelled to testify against the other. So this is an exception from the common rule that you have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So there are, here are a couple of common examples of testimonial privilege. And again, testimony means protecting you from having to testify in court. Um, so one, for example, is attorney-client privilege. So as you might imagine, 
our society places a special protection on the communications between an individual and their attorney. We all have a right to legal representation. And so as a component of that, we want to protect and make sure that you're able to share everything you can with your, everything you need to with your attorney in order to get the best possible advice. The next is spousal privilege. So people have probably heard about this marital privilege, spousal privilege. And again, this is to recognize the sanctity of the marital relationship and to try to protect those communications. The next is clergy, similarly recognizing the importance of people's faith and religion in, their, in our society, trying to make sure that communication shared in that vein cannot be compelled to be disclosed. And then we have doctor-patient privilege and psychotherapist-patient privilege. So in two different ways in psychiatry, there may be opportunities where either in your role as a physician or in your role as a psychotherapist, or I'm not sure if, if there are non-psychiatry clinicians in the audience, but that may be another uh, case in which in the practice of psychotherapy, you're also protected from having to disclose these sorts of communications. So why our profession? I think we can understand why attorneys would be exempted from this, but why physicians, why psychotherapy, why mental health? Why would this be exempted? And the rationale is essentially that if a patient is fearful that their physician or therapist will have to disclose his or her private information during a legal proceeding, the patient may not disclose necessary information during the course of their treatment. This could negatively impact their ability to receive a diagnosis, evaluation, or other forms of treatment. And so as a, as a society, we recognize how important that is to sustain the mental health of our communities. And so it's been protected from having to be disclosed. So for example, a patient might confess to their mental health provider that they committed a crime. Uh, or they might describe how an injury was sustained during an illegal activity. And here I have a, a very poor rudimentary cartoon depicting a person with a knife in their back, saying that they have sort of a stabbing pain in their back, depicting that they may have sustained an injury during the course of some kind of activity they don't want to talk about. Or rather, they don't want their uh, physician to be forced to talk about it in court. So again, distinguishing confidentiality from privilege Confidentiality is both an ethical duty and a legal obligation to not share the private information. Privilege is a legal right, and, but it creates an exemption from the typical duty to go up on the stand and say everything you know or observed. And as you probably are all aware, there are exceptions to confidentiality, even though we owe this duty to our patients. And there are situations or reasons in the vast majority of states in which there are exceptions to confidentiality that either are permissible or may be required. So one is for care coordination. So a lot of this happens kind of behind the scenes, sometimes out of the scope of our clinical work, uh, but through, the, through electronic medical records. So anyone with access to the record can see what was, has been written about them without requiring a specific release of information. Um, I feel maybe aware of the, the the recent uh, federal legislation that's come out that's entitled patients to also have access to their own electronic medical record information. Anyone involved in care coordination, so social workers, case managers, et cetera, are often needed to share basic medical information to facilitate, to facilitate transitions in care from the hospital to other settings. And also in any setting where there's an integration of medical care, so physicians, APRNs, PAs, et cetera, may need to ask, access information or be able to discuss aspects of a patient's treatment without having to every single time get an explicit release of information. So third-party payers or another, so insurance companies, and there are dozens of them listed here, uh, that we don't need to require a release of information every time information is shared with an insurance company to ensure payment for services. And then in emergency situations, so most states have a law or statute which allows a clinician or provider to override confidentiality requirements in emergency situations to ensure that urgent care is provided to an individual in a situation that might be life-threatening. So we have another uh, case example, see if anyone's again willing to step up. So imagine now you're working in an emergency department setting when a new patient is brought in by the police. The patient was intoxicated and causing a disturbance in the downtown urban setting where you're working. The police inform you 
he has been charged with disturbing the peace. They agree to leave the patient in your custody, but they'd like to know whether he needs to be in the hospital. They request an assessment and ask that you call them when you're done to tell them your opinion about what the patient needs. So what would you do in this circumstance? Who, who's gonna be brave? You are only guy that's gonna be brave. I appreciate it. Hey, Dr. Weiser, uh, Dr. Fowler here again. I think in this specific uh, circumstance, because we already talked about um, statutes and subpoenas, I think this would be an instance where um, they can't mandate you to actually give them that assessment and that you could uh, maintain their medical records and then not have to report back to them. That would be just my opinion though. Yeah, well, that's a very good instinct here. So again, so you get an extra gold star here for being willing to come forward twice and answer a question. Um, so you're right. So <clears throat> I don't know if people have encountered this for you guys in your training yet, but in most settings, when you're dealing with emergency rooms, it's pretty common that the police will bring patients to emergency room settings. There, in many states, there are diversionary laws that allow them to do this either after charging somebody or in lieu of charging somebody with a crime. But they often, they, they, they want to know what's going to happen to the individual, either because they feel they have a, you know, a right and obligation to know what happens to keep the community safe or curiosity or some combination of the two. And what's really important here to remember is exactly what you're saying, which is your duty is confidentiality to the patient. So unless you have a court order or a release of information from that patient, you really are not entitled to share the information with the officer. So it might be different, for example, if the officer is gonna keep the patient in their custody and the officer says, look, I have a legal duty to maintain custody of this individual. Well, then they can sit there in the ER and, and follow whatever the hospital's policies are regarding firearms, et cetera, and they can stay. But if they're, once they leave the patient, they don't, have a, they don't have a right without the patient's permission to know what their diagnosis is, to know what their treatment's going to be, to know what uh, level of care they're gonna be receiving. So the police will often try to, through their use of force, try to make it appear that they have the right to such information, but the truth is that they really don't. So the next, uh, again, then uh, you'll, you'll notice the theme here of bad and sometimes old cartoons, but this one is another that tries to paint this picture. So it says, sorry, officers, but I can't let you look at Tom Brady's medical records just because you bet on the Patriots game. Now, again, this is outdated a bit here. It should say the Buccaneers game, but uh, the point is still made that just because they're police, they don't have access to this information. So under some rare circumstances, the police or law enforcement um, will be able to gain access to this information without the patient's consent. But that, as I said, they need judicial authorization, meaning they need a judge um, to be able to obtain records or access the information. So, and both the physician and the patient should be notified prior to a court order to allow an opportunity for either party to object to the to records being released. Uh, and you as a psychiatrist are not required to provide records or to provide records prior to receiving a court order. And in the interim, you should certainly speak with a legal consultant for the facility you work in. If you're a trainee here today, certainly speak to your supervisor as was suggested earlier. So another common exception to confidentiality are mandatory reporting duties. So almost all states impose some kind of obligation for specific individuals, including physicians, to report data in certain information, uh, sorry, in certain circumstances. So the typical exceptions here in most states include various infectious disease states. Uh, COVID is one, for example, where this came up quite a bit, and we were having to report data to all of our state agencies about the number of cases of COVID so that they could be tracked child abuse or neglect, we're almost always in every state considered a mandated reporter. Elder abuse, similarly. In some states, the abuse of a developmentally disabled person is considered in the same category. In some states, sex trafficking, domestic violence, and then the duty to protect identifiable third parties. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in the second component of our presentation today. 
So now we're going to talk a little bit about HIPAA, which I'm sure is an acronym you've all heard many times. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what is and is not entailed within HIPAA. So continuing my theme here, this, this cartoon says, according to your HIPAA release form, I can't share anything with you. And this is often what it feels like with HIPAA, that HIPAA is constantly the reason we can't do things, we can't talk about things, we can't communicate with other providers. So I want to try to level set and be really clear about what is and is not permitted by HIPAA to try to provide some better um, understanding of the expectations. So what does HIPAA actually stand for? So HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It is a federal law which governs the management of protected health information. So this is different from state laws that govern confidentiality. HIPAA sets the floor, meaning all state laws about confidentiality and patient health information have to at least meet the standards set by HIPAA. States can require more than HIPAA, but they can't require less than HIPAA. And so HIPAA defines protected health information as any identifying, any identifying information related to a past, present, or future mental or physical condition, services or treatments provided, and payment information. And identifying information can include anything that links you to a patient. So their name, their address, or their social security number are examples of PHI. And HIPAA was the first law that really afforded patients significant rights to access and control their own PHI. It made it very clear that the, me the medical record really belongs to the patient. It doesn't belong to the clinician, to the physician, to the hospital. We house them in the hospital, though, I mean, electronically in the cloud, wherever it might be. We house them, but we don't own them. They're the patient's records. And so it gave patients access to copies of their records, requests that incorrect or incomplete information be fixed, and that they are allowed to obtain a list of all outside entities to whom their records are shared. So HIPAA also says that patients may only be denied these rights under very specific circumstances. So one is that the life or the physical safety of the patient or another person would be endangered if the information was released. The second is that the information in the record, there's information in the record about another person, not the patient, that would, if released, cause substantial harm to that person. And if it's requested by an agent of the patient, meaning their guardian, their conservator, and the release would cause substantial harm either to the patient or another person. So contrary to popular opinion, HIPAA does actually broaden the circumstances under which PHI may be released without consent. So HIPAA allows for several exceptions to traditional consent requirements for releasing PHI. So these include for treatment purposes, payment purposes, and general healthcare operations. And I don't know what your experience is down in Georgia, but I will say certainly here in Connecticut and everywhere else that I've spoken about this topic, what I hear more than anything is around the issue of treatment that are, although HIPAA and often even state laws allow communication between clinicians for treatment purposes, oftentimes <clears throat> hospitals, healthcare systems, clinics have rules that don't permit this. And so you know, just to be able to call one clinician to get records from another facility, it requires a release of information to be signed by the patient, even though nothing in the law says that. So usually the advice that I give to individuals is that certainly at the very least, HIPAA allows for um, clinician to clinician or physician to physician communication. And so calling, speaking, and having a verbal discussion of the patient's care is certainly permitted. The facility may require releases of information to be signed for the disclosure of records, but at least to begin that doc-to-doc -doc communication, it can happen verbally. So regarding HIPAA and law enforcement, HIPAA does permit covered entities to disclose PHI or law enforcement without the person's consent under very specific circumstances. So one, as we've talked about already, is to comply with a court order or warrant. The second is to help identify a local suspect, fugitive, material witness, or missing person. But one thing that's really important to understand about HIPAA is something called the minimum necessary standard. So it, HIPAA doesn't just tell you when you can release the information, it gives you guidance about what to release, what degree of information to release. 
And so HIPAA talks about something called the minimum necessary standard, which says that one should only release the minimum necessary amount of information to complete the required task. So this attempts to balance the need of outside entities to access certain information without the patient's consent with the need to protect patient privacy and confidentiality. So for example, in the prior example of we're trying to find our fugitive here, <clears throat> it might be important for the police to know that the person is wearing purple, that they're carrying a flashlight, that they have an orange hat on, so on and so forth. They don't need to know that the person is diagnosed with schizophrenia. They don't need to know that he's being prescribed Risperdal. They, you know, they don't need to know that his mother had alcohol use disorder. So the minimum necessary standard says that if required by law to share details, sufficient details for the outside entity to accomplish their task, then you do so and you're required to do so, but only, only share what is required, nothing more. HIPAA also speaks about substance use records uh, and provides them some additional layers of protection given concerns regarding stigma. And HIPAA also makes a distinction about psychotherapy notes. So for any uh, individuals practicing psychotherapy or trainees here learning about psychotherapy, it's important to know that, that HIPAA distinguishes between medical records, which are notes in a chart describing um, very basic aspects of a patient's care versus sensitive information, thoughts about their psychological processes, anything that might be psychodynamic or really you know, relating to early life experiences, motivations, insight, things like that. Uh, and, and that those, if kept separate from the medical record are afforded additional layers of protection. So how do we distinguish HIPAA versus state law? So as I said earlier, HIPAA, if HIPAA and a state law are in conflict, the state law will supersede, meaning that you should follow your local law in Georgia. HIPAA only supersedes a state law when it does, when it mandates a higher level of patient privacy or patient autonomy. So as I said, in, for the most part, HIPAA is going to set the floor. It's the bare minimum you have to do. If by some circumstance your state requires less than HIPAA, then you would have to, you would still be required to meet the standards of HIPAA. But most states require as much, if not more, than HIPAA at this point. And essentially, whichever requires greater privacy and autonomy is what's going to win out. So uh, this is probably one of the more boring of our question and answers, but does anybody know the official Georgia law that talks about patient confidentiality? I'm sure everyone's, I'll just, I won't wait too long for our one brave soul. This is a pretty boring one. So I'm sure everyone had on the tip of their tongues, official code of Georgia 37-3-166 and 37-4-125. So these are the laws in the state of Georgia that describe your confidentiality uh, requirements for individuals with mental health and dis developmental disabilities. So it requires that all information about individuals, whether oral or written, and regardless of the former location in which is maintained, is confidential, and it may be disclosed only when the individual or another person authorized on their behalf gives written consent or when the law specifically authorizes your disclosure. So this is not an exhaustive list, but what I was able to find about in Georgia is that it does allow for the disclosure of mental health and dis developmental disability records without the patient's consent in the following circumstances. So to physicians or psychologists for continuity of care purposes, to other clinicians in a bona fide emergency, to the guardian or healthcare agent of the individual, to the individual's attorney if authorized and if requested at a hearing held under your mental health code or in response to a valid subpoena or court order of a competent jurisdiction. So we're gonna watch a little brief um, video here from a publicly available website that'll give a, a fun summary of what we've talked about so far. Confidentiality is a key component of the patient-physician relationship. Patients who believe that their health information will remain confidential are more likely to provide doctors with more accurate information, which in turn will lead to better medical advice. Here are three things you cannot forget about confidentiality. One, 
Most breaches are inadvertent. You may encounter a particularly challenging case that you want to share with your colleagues. That is okay, as long as you don't disclose information that can reasonably lead to the identity of the patient, like name, initials, prominent family members, or occupation, if unusual. You should also refrain from sharing cases on social media, especially those who might be on the news, as you can easily lose control of who sees this information once posted. 2. Confidentiality applies to individuals, not families. It is not uncommon for physicians to care for multiple family members. This can be very rewarding, but also fraught with ethical dilemmas. What if your patient asked you why you prescribed birth control pills to her 15-year-old daughter? Or what if you received a request from an insurance company for your patient's family history after you recently diagnosed his father with coronary artery disease? With few exceptions, you can only disclose medical information with your patient's implied or expressed consent and the information disclosed should have been collected directly from that patient. 3. There are exceptions to confidentiality. The law recognizes specific situations where you need to disclose information for the greater public good. An example of mandatory reporting is when you suspect that a child is in need of protection. There are also situations where it is permissible for a physician to report to a governmental agency. For instance, in the situation in which a patient demonstrates to you that he or she will likely inflict serious harm on a specific person or group of persons. All right. So we're going to go ahead and shift gears now. Um, so uh, our, our next uh, interactive question, anybody from the audience able to identify who these are pictures of? Hold on. Oh, sorry. Takiyanga, I forget her last name. And the other person who asked him is Pogdar, P-O-D-D-A-R. That's right. Thank you very much for participating. So you're right. So that's Tatiana Tarasov and Prozenjit Podar. So uh, Ms. Tarasov is the individual for whom we probably, many of you have heard about Tarasov laws um, or Tarasov rules, Tarasov warnings. Uh, and Mr. Podar is the individual who unfortunately killed Ms. Tarasov and led to the, the circumstances that we're going to be talking about. So <clears throat> we're going to um, talk a little bit about the background of the case. So the Tarasov case itself is based on uh, the 1969 murder of a university student, Tatiana Tarasov. The perpetrator, Prozenjit Podar, was an Indian graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley who had met Ms. Tarasov at a folk dancing class on campus. Uh, they went on several dates, but they soon disagreed on the seriousness of their relationship. And Mr. Podar became obsessed with Ms. Tarasov. When Ms. Uh, Tarasov rebuffed his advances, Mr. Podar began stalking her. And shortly thereafter, he agreed to receive counseling at the University Medical Center. His therapist at the time, Dr. Lawrence Moore, who was a psychologist, became concerned when Mr. Podar confessed his intention of killing Ms. Tarasov. Dr. Moore advised him that if the death threats continued, he would have no choice but to have, him, have Mr. Podar hospitalized. After this ultimatum, Mr. Podar stopped attending treatment and Dr. Moore was left wondering what to do. Ultimately, Dr. Moore wrote a letter to the campus police advising the police of the death threats. Police interviewed Mr. Podar in an apartment that he shared with a roommate who happened to be Ms. Tarasov's brother. When Mo Mr. Podar denied making any death threats and assured the police he would stay away from Ms. Tarasov, he was released. Dr. Moore discussed the situation with his supervisor, who was a psychiatrist, Dr. Harvey Powelson. And Dr. Powelson actually ordered Dr. Moore to destroy all of his therapy notes from his sessions with Mr. Podar. And he admonished Dr. Moore for ever having released this information to the police without the patient's permission. Despite what he said to the police, Mr. Podar continued to stalk Ms. Tarasov, and on October 27, 1969, he confronted her at her home and he ultimately stabbed her to death. Ms. Tarasov's parents launched a civil suit against the therapist and the University of California at Berkeley, stating that the defendant should have warned Ms. Tarasov directly about the death threats and that doing so might have saved her life. At the time, Dr. Moore and Powelson defended their actions on the ground of their duty to confidentiality to their patient over a private third party. 
the initial court agreed with them. And uh, subsequent um, California Supreme Courts reviewed the decision and finally handed down its landmark decision in 1976 that we'll talk more about. So we're gonna, um, again, have a little brief video from CBS that will help uh, orient us to this topic. What you say to your doctor is usually confidential, but 45 states have laws requiring or permitting mental health professionals to disclose if they believe a patient is dangerous. Dr. Robert Klitzman is a professor of psychiatry at Columbia oh, University. There's legal and there's ethics. So legally right now, I am under no obligation as a physician to tell anyone. Ethically, however, I would argue that if I'm a physician and I know someone is may have a plane full of people and crash it, I feel that there may be times when I have an obligation to notify someone. A case 40 years ago shows the danger of a doctor keeping quiet. In 1969, California college student Prasenjit Padar killed a woman he'd met in a dance class. Before the murder, Padar told his therapist about his desire to kill Tatiana Tarasov. The therapist didn't warn the victim. And a court found that he was liable, that in that case he should have violated patient confidentiality. So there's an ethical standard on the one hand and a legal standard on the other. But even reporting is not foolproof. In 2012, after James Holmes shot and killed 12 people in an Aurora, Colorado movie theater, the investigation revealed his psychiatrist had warned police that he was dangerous and homicidal, but it's not clear if anything was done. Some privacy advocates agree that there are cases where warning law enforcement is necessary, but they worry about a chilling effect on patients. Chad Marlowe is with the American Civil Liberties Union. You might deter people from seeking mental health services in order to avoid disclosing things they want to keep private. So what is a Tarasov duty? Is it a duty to warn or is it a duty to protect? So when people talk about the Tarasov legal decision, they're actually referring to two different legal cases. There was a Tarasov one and a Tarasov two case based on repeated appeals. So they each case actually outlined a different duty for mental health practitioners. The first case described it as a duty to warn an identifiable victim, but the second case that came later expanded and said it was really a duty to protect an identifiable victim. So, and this is an important distinction that we're gonna talk about because a, a warning is very clear. A warning says this, you know, it, it's, a, it's a limited action, you are required to warn the potential victim. When you have a duty to protect, it gives you options. Protect is a much broader scope and it gives you many opportunities for how to protect the potential victim that don't necessarily, they could, but they don't necessarily entail a warning. And so there are ways to try to better protect your patient's confidentiality in the process. So, other important things to know, so the Tarasov duties were created by the California State Supreme Court. So officially, the Tarasov ruling only applies in the state of California. It was not a U.S. Supreme Court case. However, there were massive uh, changes in legislation that happened as a result of the case, uh, leading each state or virtually all states to develop their own unique Tarasov laws. To understand these laws, it's important, tears off duties, it's important to know that laws can be created in two different ways, legal standards can be created in two different ways. So one is through a statute. This is a written law passed by a legislature, but the other is through case law. So this is when a precedent is set by the outcome of former legal cases in court. It's also known as common law. So Tarasov duties and liabilities. So Tarasov duties create a liability for the clinician. So if you inappropriately fail to act when you could have or should have, and a patient later commits a violent act that you could have done more to protect the identifiable victim, then you may be liable. However, at the same time, if you act and the patient later sues you for a breach of confidentiality, that same duty provides a form of legal protection because it demonstrates why you were either permitted or forced to disclose their confidential information. So what prompts a Tarasov duty? So the patient makes a threat against an identifiable third party. So your duty to protect the third party is activated if one, the threat is credible. 
So it has to be explicit and it has to be a credible threat that the patient intends to carry out and the victim has to be identifiable. So for example, questions often come up regarding whether uh, there's some duty that's in, um, incurred if a patient makes a threat against a celebrity for whom they have very little to no likelihood of actually being able to reach. So if you're caring for a patient who suffers from a psychotic illness and part of their delusional system is that they believe that they need to inflict harm uh, um, against a celebrity who lives in Los Angeles, California, but you're here located in Georgia and the patient has no means, no ability to actually carry out the threat against the person who's thousands and thousands of miles away, you don't have, a duty is not incurred. It's not a credible threat, even though the victim is identifiable. So these are the things, but in the same token, if the patient is making vague threats against large groups of people or vague threats without identifying any victim or group of victims at all, a duty is not incurred because there's no identifiable victim. So how do you act? So each state has differences regarding what's expected of you when um, a Tarasov duty is incurred or could be incurred. So some states have laws that are mandatory. That means the provider or clinician is required by law to act on a threat and breach confidentiality, and you'll be protected from liability for doing so. So in these states, there's a law that exists either in statute or by case law that says, if you become aware that your patient is making credible threats to an identifiable third party, you must breach confidentiality in order to protect the patient or protect the third party. In a permissive state, this, these are places where there are laws or statutes that say, you as the provider may breach confidentiality. If you do so, you will be legally protected, but you're not obligated to do so. However, if the patient does act on their threats and you chose not to act, not to warn the, or protect the, the third party, you're not going to be protected. The permissive state doesn't protect you from failure to act, but it will, it doesn't obligate you and it does protect you if you choose to act. And then the final is there's a small group of states, four or five states that really give no legal guidance whatsoever on what to do. So we're back to our question and answer time. Uh, is anybody anybody brave enough to make a guess or let us know what is the law in Georgia? Does anybody know if you're a mandatory, a permissive, or a state without guidance? No. Hold on. You can take a guess. I can take a guess. Yeah, this is a different with a behavioral therapy. Uh, Georgia does not have a specific Tarasoff law at this time. There are some precedents. Very good. That's right. So in Georgia, you do not have a statute. Uh, you don't have a, a, a written law that determines um, whether or not, you know, that does, uh, that spells this out. But he said there is, there's legal precedent. So we would call this case law. So in Georgia, uh, the case that I was able in my uh, search to find is called the Bradley Center versus Wesser et al. It's a 1982 case. And for those who may not be familiar with it, so Matthew and Linda Westner were a married couple with marital troubles due to reportedly uh, Mrs. Westner having an extramarital affair. Mr. Westner was admitted to a psychiatric hospital after a suicide attempt. During his hospitalization, the treatment of Mr. Westner revealed that he would likely cause bodily harm to his wife if he had the opportunity. Despite this, Mr. Wester was issued an unrestricted weekend pass privilege and allowed to leave the, the hospital campus. While exercising his pass, Mr. Wester obtained a gun, confronted his wife and her then partner, and he shot and killed them both. Mr. Wester was later tried and convicted on two counts of murder. So the court in its ruling found that where the treatment of a mental health patient involves an exercise of control over him by a physician who knows or should know that the patient is likely to cause bodily harm to others, an independent duty arises from that relationship and falls upon the physician to exercise that control with such reasonable care as to prevent harm to others at the hands of the patient. So essentially by case law, it requires, this is what I would consider a mandatory state by case law. Again, there's no written legal statute, 
um, but the precedent in Georgia is to be a mandatory state. Uh, and certainly I'd be welcome feedback from you all in the audience here, whether that plays out in practice or not. Um, but that's what's what the case law says you ought to do. So this is a map, this is from a 2014 study. So it's getting a little dated now. Um, it's eight years old, but it was published in the journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. And it demonstrates the map across the United States regarding expectations for Tarasoff duties. So the blue and green states are considered mandatory states. Blue denotes that it's written in a law. Green denotes that it's from case law, just like in Georgia, as you see here on the map. And orange states are permissive states, meaning that there is a law or case law that permits clinicians to disclose the information but doesn't require it. And then the, the handful of yellow states that are left here have no guidance at all. So state laws that talk about these kinds of duties, they differ in regards to what kind of threats count. So some only consider an imminent threat. So imminent suggests a time frame, and this often can be described as days to months, but it varies by state. I think imminent for most of us tends to mean within, uh, certainly within days, usually within 30 days, though some states extend that. Some states consider the seriousness of the threat. So this considers the nature of the threat, the likelihood it might be acted on, and it doesn't worry so much about time frame. So the threat may be imminent, but if it's not of a serious nature, it would not incur a duty. Whereas if the, do, the threat is serious, even if it's not imminent, it could in those states. So how do you discharge a Tarasov duty? So now that we have a better understanding, let's suppose you meet with the patient and you become worried that they may pose a credible threat to another person. So what do you actually do to fulfill your professional duty? So what does the law expect? So the law is going to expect that you're going to follow the standard of care for your state and profession. The standard of care is usually described as the reasonable degree of skill, knowledge, and care ordinarily possessed and exercised by members of your profession under similar circumstance. It does not require that you predict violence or prevent all tragic outcomes. So how do you respond in this circumstance? So when a patient verbalizes a credible threat to an identifiable individual, your responsibility is to first ask yourself two questions. Does the patient pose a serious risk of violence to another person? If the answer is yes, what steps might I reasonably take to protect the victim? So how do you respond? So the first thing to do is to complete a risk assessment. And we'll talk a little bit in a moment. I'll give an acronym that might help be a shorthand for thinking about a risk assessment under these circumstances. But for the most part, in clinical work, we tend to be much better about thinking about suicide risk than violence risk. We tend to encounter suicide risk much more. But the same principles and ideas about thinking about ideology, plan, intent, access to weapons or other devices that you could use to be harmful, it's the same kind of methodology you want to use in this circumstance. The next thing is you want to consider additional sources of information that will help you better assess the risk. So are there collateral, collateral informants you can reach out to? Are there past records that help you understand the patient's past history of violent behavior? These are going to be really important as you conduct your risk assessment. You're going to want to address the threat as a therapeutic issue with the patient, meaning you're going to want to acknowledge if it feels safe to do so, that the patient is making you anxious, you're, you're worried about them, did, are they worried about themselves? You want to make sure that they're safe. You want to make sure that others are safe. If you decide to breach confidentiality, in order, then you, you likely, if you can, if it's safe or when you feel it's safe to do so, you want to inform the patient that you're going to do it in order to try to maintain your therapeutic rapport with the patient. Now, again, this is going to differ quite a bit if you're in a emergency setting versus if you're in a long-term outpatient working relationship with the patient. In an emergency room setting, I'd probably be a lot less likely to go out of my way to inform the patient about the breach. If I have a long-term working relationship in an outpatient setting with a patient, I likely am going to talk to them because my hope is that they're going to return to care. And if I surprise them by breaching their confidence, 
confidentiality because I'm worried about them, I would be concerned about the impact on our therapeutic relationship. And then the last thing that you want to do is you want to document, document, document. So when we think about our risk assessment, it turns out that the literature says there's, there's really only a very weak association between people making threats and actually engaging in violence because people make threats all the time, but they rarely act out, but there is an association. So there are some factors that help increase the risk and help you better predict that a threat will actually be followed by violence. So one is substance use. So if the person is actively using substances, that increases the risk of them acting violently after a threat. If they're not currently engaged in any kind of mental health treatment, if they have a lesser educational status, and most importantly, a prior history of violence. If you, you know, the past is our best predictor of future behavior. And if they've previously engaged in violence, that significantly increases the risk. So your task is going to be to determine whether the patient is progressing on a path toward violence and whether it can be averted. So you're going to want to think about dynamic or modifiable risk factors. In risk assessment language, we think about static risk factors, which are unchanging over time. Dynamic are things that are modifiable that can change over time and may be amenable to treatment interventions. So I talked about the ACTION acronym earlier. So this is one that can be a helpful mnemonic in thinking through your risk assessment. So one, does the person have attitudes that support or facilitate violence? The next is whether they have the capacity or the means to actually carry out the violence, meaning are they threatening to shoot somebody and they have access to a gun? The next, have they crossed thresholds? So are they engaging in preparatory behaviors in order to enact their plan of violence? Just like with suicide, we want to think about their intent. Are these thoughts that are ego dystonic and disturbing to them? Or are these ego syntonic, pleasing thoughts that they're interested in satiating? The next is again to think about our collateral informants. So you want to gauge others' reactions and responses. And then you want to understand if they're being non compliant with recommended risk reduction interventions. So increasing the frequency of their treatment appointments, changes in medications whether they're um, ignoring suggestions about how to avoid interactions with the individual. These are all things to think about in assessing the level of risk. So if you've determined that there is a level of risk that's increased, how do you manage the risk? So there are a number of options available to you. And as I said, because the duty is to protect rather than to warn, we see at the bottom of the list, warn is a, one of the options. You can warn the police, you can warn the victim, but there are a number of other options that are available to you. If you think the person is an imminent risk, I would strongly encourage hospitalization. If you think that they're a lesser risk, but there is some increased risk, as I said, you can increase the frequency of your appointments. You could start or increase a medication. You could consider other forms of closer monitoring, um, and you could potentially warn. But you know, I, again, I'd, I'd stray away from a warning if at all possible. In particular, hospitalization is often a much better option than warning. Um, the reason hospitalization tends to have certain advantages is that one, it keeps both parties safe during the crisis. Warning the victim or even warning the police, as it's, you know, it was, it was 50 years ago now, but was evident in the Podar case, um, it doesn't always accomplish the goal of keeping the patient safe. Hospitalization does keep both individuals safe. It also minimizes the scope of your breach of confidentiality. So you will still have to breach the patient's confidentiality, but it will be to share it with other clinical providers as opposed to with the, the lay public, the victim, the police. And it's actually a more effective means of risk reduction. So as we talked about earlier, documentation is key. So when you're thinking about what you're going to document, you want to document that you perform the risk assessment. You want to provide a rationale for implementing a reasonable risk management plan that's based on your assessment. You want to include what you did and what you didn't do and why. The why is really important. Oftentimes people are pretty good or at least better about documenting what they did. They rarely say why they did it. And that extra sentence or two can be hugely important if they're ends up being legal consequences from these events. 
Who did you consult and communicate with? This is really important. And whether the patient has or has not been adherent to your treatment recommendations. This information can be really critical for people in the future who are going to care for the patient. And as I said, it can be very protective in all future lawsuits. So these cases often, if they do become a lawsuit, hinge on foreseeability. So how foreseeable was it that something bad was going to happen? So a clinician is much more likely to be found liable if they made a judgment without seeking all the available information, e.g. not reviewing available records, than when you made an informed clinical decision, but it just turned out to be wrong. So when you're in doubt, consult. So one of our brave souls talked about consulting with Dr. Glass. I think that's a wonderful idea. If you have a, a, an attorney or a risk management consultant for the hospital or clinic you're working at, that's another idea. If you have a colleague who's more experienced or trained in forensic psychiatry, those are all wonderful available options. So in summary, confidentiality is both an ethical and a legal duty to keep information communicated by patients private, but it's not absolute. And there may be situations where we are even required to break confidentiality. And generally, the state law that you're in in Georgia is going to supersede HIPAA unless somehow the state law requires you to do less than HIPAA. When we think about duties to third parties, it's going to vary from state to state. So you ought to be familiar with the, the laws in, in Georgia. We talked about the case of Bradley Center v. Wexner. Um, you want to discharge one's duty in such situation often requires more than simply issuing a warning. And your responsibility is to assess the patient's level of risk and both enact and document a management plan based on their assessed level of risk, which aims to protect the third parties. And as I said time and time again, when in doubt, consult. It's really best not to worry alone. Uh, that, that dictum tends to apply well in many circumstances, and this is certainly one of them. So I think we have some time now for questions. And I see there's a couple that have been typed in here into a Q&A in the chat. Um, so one uh, says, would it be ethical to approach a patient with the request to share their information in court? Even asked in a neutral way, wouldn't the power imbalance make it coercive? Uh, I think that's a really fair question. I, I think that my guidance in that regard, and typically the guidance in that regard is because the possibility, there's a possibility that you're gonna be forced to share that information in court regardless. And in theory, if the patient is willing to have that information shared, it's probably more palatable that they be given some opportunity to grant the permission for it to be shared. And depending on the circumstances, the patients may actually want it to be shared. So they may be engaged in a legal battle where they think you can be helpful to them in some way. And so they want the information shared. But you're right that given the power dynamics in our treatment relationships, it is certainly possible that just by virtue of asking it, the patient may feel some undue pressure to share. And so if you feel that that's a risk, I, you know, it certainly would be reasonable to not ask the patient. But at the very least, I think you need to inform them about what's going on and what the potential uh, outcomes may be by the fact that you um, received a, a court order to speak about their care. And then I see, I think Dr. Glass left me a note here. Just talk about the Bradley Center case. I believe some interpret it to be more about preventing premature inpatient discharge instead of informing or protecting the victim when the patient is already outside of the hospital. That's helpful for me to know. And obviously I don't practice in the state of Georgia. And so I was doing my best to understand and research, but there are some things obviously that through research are lost to what's actually happening in practice. Thank you, Dr. Wasser. Do we have any other questions online? You can um, type it into the Q&A bubble or in person. Uh, Dr. Prasad has a question. Thank you for the great talk. I am uh, the gold medalist winner, Dr. Fowler's program director. So, <laughs> uh, what you had mentioned earlier about the celebrities, I've faced this several times, unfortunately, and that's very, very challenging. Uh, twice I had to go through the White House security because of the threat to the president. Is that enough or would you feel, and this is after my assessment that yes, this was a credible threat. Um, 
the local police didn't want to handle it. There was no way for me to contact the president. So all I could do was just inform the White House security. Is that enough? Because now I am dealing with the state laws, the federal law, as well as ethics. So I just wanted your opinion on that. Yes, it's a great question. And um, I think those cases, unfortunately, given the prominence of individuals like the president of the United States do come up not infrequently. I think if you inform the, the White House security, then you have done enough in that case, because you're clearly making it known to individuals who are in a position where their responsibility is to ensure the safety of the individual, the potentially the potential victim in this case. Uh, and I and particularly if you've also gone to your state law enforcement and they've said, we don't want to touch this. Um, I think if you were to document that and say, I reached out to local law enforcement, they directed me to so and so I reached out to the White House, they've said they've taken the case, they understand, you know, that I, I think as long as you thoroughly document the steps you've taken, then you've done as much as you can possibly do. Excellent. Any other comments or questions? All right, thank you, Dr. Wasser, great information. Thank you so much for having me today, I appreciate it. And thank everyone who is willing to participate. It's great to be here, thank you. Thank you.